Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There were four church leaders who were all at a conference together. And one afternoon, these four leaders, who were all incidentally from the same town as each other, were having a cup of coffee and getting real honest with each other. They decided to talk about their personal failures in life. So the first guy decided to open up and he said, let me just tell you guys something. I hit the bottle from time to time. I'm not proud of it. I know my congregation wouldn't approve. I even preach against drinking, but from time to time, I just can't help it. I have a sip. The second leader said, well, I guess it's my turn. I have a gambling problem. Drinking isn't my problem, but whenever I travel out of town, I gamble. In fact, I usually lose a lot of money. The third leader spoke up and he said, neither of those have ever been my issue, but I do have a problem with being honest in my income tax. You see, there's extra money I make on the side and I don't report it. It's just that I need the money, and I know it's not right, but I cheat on my income tax. Well, the fourth leader was just sitting there, arms folded, listening the whole time. And he finally spoke up. He said, guys, first of all, I just want to thank you for being so honest. And second, I want to announce to you that I don't have a drinking problem. And I don't have a gambling problem. And I am honest with my income tax. But, he said, I do have one vice. He said, I love to gossip. (laughs) And I can't wait to leave here and tell everyone about you three guys. Well, no leader is perfect. Just like no church is perfect. And I know you've heard it before, that if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, because you'll ruin it. And I also know that people will leave churches because of leadership abuses. I've heard of it and I've seen it before. It's also true, however, that pastors will leave churches as well. In fact, 1,600 ministers per month leave the ministry. 1,600 per month. Why? Well, it can be anything from moral failure to personal burnout. But you might be interested to know that 85% in a recent poll said the greatest problem they face, they said, is they're sick and tired of dealing with problem people. Uh, disgruntled elders, deacons, worship leaders, board members, and assistant pastors. One confessed and said, the trouble with being a leader is you can't be sure whether people are following you or chasing you. The title of today's message is a very different title. It's called The Deacon-Possessed Church. I couldn't resist. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a few years back, and he came up with this. He was talking about his own church and the leadership problems, and he said, I think I belong to a deacon-possessed church. And I laughed, and I said, boy, that's, that's a great title for a book. It certainly could work for a message. So that is the name of this message, a deacon-possessed church. And what I mean is that it is possible 
at any level of leadership, any level, pastor, elder, deacon, board member, uh, home leader, whatever it is, usher, to get the focus off Christ and off of God's people and onto yourself and your agenda and your little coup or group. And church history has been littered with that kind of stuff. Now, Jesus said he would build his church. In fact, it could be said the only organization that Jesus ever said that he himself would build would be the church. I will build my church. And he wants to build it with servant leaders, those who will serve one another. The church, as we've said before, is basically a living organism. It's more than an organization. It's much more than an institution. It's a living organism where human beings forgiven, gather together, and church life begins. It's an organism. But we must also state that as the organism grows, it requires organization. Because after all, an organism that grows without organization is a blob. So organisms, as they grow, need organization. But they must be organized with servant leaders. Otherwise, People will be so turned off, they will leave in droves. Perhaps the saddest example that I can think of is that of Mark Twain, raised in the church, raised by a godly mother, and even married a Christian wife. But he said that he had seen too many elders and too many deacons who were slave owners and abused their slaves, and were foul-mouthed. And though they acted so pious on Sundays, they were so unscrupulous in business the rest of the week that he said, I got turned off to God, turned off to the Bible, turned off to the church, and embittered. And if you've read many of his writings, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, you know that to be true. Turned off by it. He would say, church, who needs it? So... The church can be spirit-led, if the leaders are spirit-led, but it can also become, as the title suggests, deacon-possessed. Now today, I'm going to take you to two places, Acts 20, uh, but first Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at three things. That servants should be helpful, but servants can be hurtful, and finally, servants must be humble. The first are two conditions, and the third really is the antidote to the problem, and that is humility. Let's begin with the first. In Acts chapter 6, let's read the first few verses together. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, notice the organism is growing, there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, these are the apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, 
whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We have an internal conflict, a spiritual problem in the first church at Jerusalem, and the spiritual problem is met by spiritual people who keep spiritual priorities. One of the tests of leadership is to spot problems before they become full-blown emergencies. And the apostles did that. Now, I believe that Luke, who's the writer of this book, uh, one of the reasons Luke includes this paragraph of information, in fact, I'll say one of the reasons the Holy Spirit, I believe, chose to preserve it, is to show why a leadership change was necessary in the early church of Jerusalem. And it was indeed, and it does change here. Now, the problem, according to the text, developed in the women's ministry. One group of gals pitted against another group, and there was division. And I think you know one of the devil's favorite and most predictable tools in ruining churches is dissension. That brings division. Somebody once said there's four main bones of every organization. There's the wish bones. They wish someone else would fix this problem. There's the jaw bones. They just talk about the problem, never do anything to help it. Number three, the knuckle bones. They just knock everything. And number four, the back bones. They carry the brunt of the load and they do the work. I think we see that here. The problem is basically this. There were Greek-speaking Jewish women who felt that the Hebrew-speaking Jewish women were getting preferential treatment. After all, this was Jerusalem. Here's a little background. The Hebrews were a group of people born in Israel. They were native. They spoke Aramaic. They read the Hebrew scriptures. It's sort of like... um, Those who would say, we read the King James only. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. That kind of mentality. Uh, The Hellenists were Greek speakers born outside of Israel, and their version of the Bible was the Septuagint, culturally miles apart. And historically, there was an animosity between both of them. Now get this. In their Jewish days, they met in separate synagogues. In Jerusalem. They didn't even fellowship together. But now they're Christians, and now they are gathered together. But they're still people. And they bring all of their baggage and all of that history to bear, and it creates problems. It's not unlike years ago in this church, I remember having some Vietnam vets, and there were also some Vietnamese believers as a part of our church, and those groups did not get along well. Or if you went back in our history to World War II and there were American soldiers fellowshipping with German believers, it'd be something to get past, something to work out. So the wishbones want someone to fix it here and the jawbones are talking about it. And thus the backbones, the apostles, come to fix it. Now, now something I want you to notice. In chapter 6, this is the very first time in the book of Acts the term disciples is used. It's used 28 times. This is the first. Disciples 
are mentioned and apostles are mentioned. And what I'd like you to see is that was the simple earliest division of the church. There were disciples and there were apostles. There were followers of Christ and there were apostles, those 12 who walked and talked and lived with Jesus Christ. And the followers, the disciples, were led by the apostles. But that couldn't last long. The apostles would one day die and other leadership would have to arise. So, Along with the twelve, here come the seven, the table servers, those who are going to help in the daily distribution. So now the church can both passionately preach and compassionately care for the needs in the community. A few lessons emerge immediately. Lesson number one, everybody can't do everything, but everybody can do something. And lesson number two, God calls and equips different people to do different tasks, and it's all facilitated by leadership, as we see here. Now, one of the things I'd like you to see in Acts 6, before we move on to the next point, is Acts chapter 6 is where the concept of deacons in a church come from. At least that's what has been historically taught. And that is because of verse 2. Notice the last two words of verse 2. Serve tables. You see the word serve? Diaconine. Deaconing. Diaconine. They're serving, deaconing tables. That's the word. However, don't make too much of that word. Because the term, the official term deacon, does not appear at all in the book of Acts, not even once. It will be developed later on. In fact, look at verse 4. But we, this is the apostles now speaking, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Diakonia to logu. The deaconing of the word. So do you see that the word deacon is simply a word for general service of any kind, of any kind. Whether you're serving tables or serving in the word. You're a table servant or you're a word servant, but you're all servants, and all servants should be helpful. In fact, let me tell you this. Romans chapter 13. How many of you are familiar with Romans chapter 13? So four, five. Okay, we've got to do better than that. Hmm. Uh, Romans 13 is all about how Christians relate to civil government, civil authorities, the government of the state. And it says in Romans 13 that the government magistrates, police officers, etc., are ministers of God. Same word, deacon, diaconia. They are servants of God. It's the same term applied to elders or to official deacons or to leaders of any kind. So the point I want to make is that church government at first is very flexible and morphed and grew and changed to meet the needs of a growing congregation. So in the very earliest days, there were disciples and apostles, and now the seven, and the seven are the servants who come to assist the needs of the flock. Now, this brings up a question, and it's a very common question. I'm only going to touch on it. What is the proper form of church government? Which is the form that the church today ought to follow? Well, now we have a problem. 
Because though Jesus said that he would build his church, he never said exactly how he would build his church. He never left a policy manual. He never left a book. Here's how to build a church Jesus' way. In fact, did you know that Jesus said nothing at all about the organization of the church he would build? In fact, what he focused on is the character and the attitude of the leadership, not how the leadership would be structured. As an example, Matthew 20, Jesus said, The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. The organizational information at best in the New Testament is very nebulous. And that's why there are different views on church government. Let me give you three main views. There are four or five or even six others, or uh, six total, but I'll just give you the three main ones that are used today. Number one, congregational church government. That's where every congregation member votes. It's a democracy. We vote on everything all the time. Second form of church government, Presbyterian. That's where we have a group of elders making the decision. And finally, Episcopalian or Episcopal, from the Greek word episkopos, the bishops. And you have a leader or a few leaders in an area that call the shots. Well, each one of those groups will draw from and find scriptural support for each of those three views. So, I simply appeal to the Nelson Bible Dictionary that I read this week. One sentence only sums it up. Quote, No single pattern of government in the early church can be discovered by reading the New Testament. Close quote. Because Jesus left no rules, and things seemed to change as they went. There's one other source I want to quote to you, and that is from Philip Schaff. And if you're a Bible student, that rings a bell. Schaff's Church History, all eight volumes, is the definitive source for most all Bible scholars. So I pulled my eight volumes out and read volume one, not all of it, but part of it this week. This is what he says. Christ laid down no minute arrangements, but only the simple and necessary element of an organization, wisely leaving the details to be shaped by the growing and changing wants of the church in different ages and in different countries. Now listen, it doesn't matter which form of church government a church holds to. If the focus of the people or the leadership is the same focus as that of Christ having the heart of a servant, doesn't matter what the structure is. All the structures can be good and all of them can be bad. You can have good leaders and you can have carnal leaders, just like you can have good congregations and you can have carnal congregations. As uh, C.S. Lewis used to say, no clever arrangement of bad eggs ever made a good omelet. So, at first it was apostles and disciples. Then it was apostles plus the seven, plus the congregation. And eventually it will become elders and deacons in the pastoral epistles. But one of the the most important things before we jump into chapter 20 is this church was spirit-led. It was not fleshly driven. It was not deacon-possessed. It was spirit-led. It wasn't about... Peter, or it wasn't about John, or it wasn't about the deacons. It was about the Lord's glory and the people of God. It was, 
It was deity obsessed, not deacon possessed. Now let's go to Acts chapter 20 for the second point this morning, and that is that servants can be hurtful. And whenever there are hurtful servants, they are no longer servants. Acts chapter 20 is a leadership summit. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He calls for the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Interestingly, the word is presbyteros, the presbytery, the elders. And he talks to them, and I jump now down to verse 28. He's summing it up. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you what? Overseers. That's the Greek word episkopos, bishops. So he addresses the elders and calls them also bishops. But something else I want you to notice. He says that you are to shepherd the church of God. See the word shepherd? That's poimenos. That's pastor. Pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this is what I want you to say. See, he's addressing these people, calling them by three different names, all referring to the same person. In other words, an elder is a bishop, is a pastor at this stage of church history. Uh, Paul, in talking to them, is looking to the future when he's going to go, and bad things are going to happen to the church. He predicts two problems. Problem number one, false prophets will come from the outside. And number two, faithless leaders will come from the inside. Verse 29 I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What's he talking about? He's talking about false prophets, people who bring bad doctrine, wrong teaching. It has always been the case throughout church history that whenever truth is proclaimed, the devil will counteract it with false teaching. It's the light bulb principle. You turn on the light on the front porch, the bugs will come and try to get inside the house. But that's only the first problem. Look at the next verse, verse 30. It's even worse than the first problem. Faithless leaders from the inside will come. Paul says, also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Who's he speaking about? Speaking about leaders gone bad. Leaders with an agenda. Ambitious leaders. One commentator, and I agree with him, said, ambition is the mother of all heresies. Because ambitious leaders make it all about them. Not God, not the people, them. This is the deacon-possessed church. Notice what Paul says they will do. To draw away the disciples after themselves means to tear away, to drag away, to isolate. It's the person who says, I know that the church teaches you this, but I'm starting a Bible study, and I'm going to tell you the truth, the balance of the truth. They want to draw away disciples after themselves. Now, did you notice something? It's, it's almost so obvious, but if we don't really pay attention to it, we might miss it. Both the false prophets and the faithless leaders don't show up until Paul leaves. After my departure, 
they'll come in and they'll rise up from among you. Now, why is that? Why, why would they wait? Well, it's pretty simple. There'll be a leadership vacuum when Paul leaves, right? Wouldn't you say when Paul leaves, that's a huge vacuum? So as long as Paul was there, he had a strong enough personality to keep any of these kind of characters at bay. But once he leaves, they will seize the opportunity and they will show up. Question, did it happen? Because Paul left. He predicted it would happen. Did it happen? Boy, you bet it happened. Because when Paul left, he puts Timothy in charge of the church of Ephesus. And Paul writes how many letters to Timothy? Two. And in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul brings up the fact that people have risen up among the leadership to draw away disciples after them with false stuff. Even so much that Paul names them in the Bible. Now, for those of you who say, well, you should never name names, we'll go tell that to Paul. He does it three times. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, He says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, as you know, all the Christians who came here from the province of Asia have deserted me. Even Phygelus and Hermogenes are gone. You know, when I read this, I think, man, don't cross Paul the Apostle. Because if you do, he might write you up in the Bible. (laughs) So that generation after generation, no matter what era, no matter what language, will read your name in the text. Bummer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Their message will spread like cancer. Interesting term. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. See, he's not talking about a spirit-led group like Acts chapter 6. This is a fleshly-driven group. This is a deacon-possessed group. And he aptly says their message will spread like cancer. These people to the body of Christ are what cancer is to a human body. They proliferate cells. They take the energy and the focus off the other vital organs and off the body's health in general. And it's all about them. And they're not serving anyone but themselves. Now, I want to close this off. The most prominent example that I find of somebody doing this in all of the New Testament is a guy by the name of Diotrephes. Ever heard of Diotrephes? There's a whole book in the New Testament written just about him. It's called 3 John. John the Apostle writes about Diotrephes, and he says in 3 John 9 and 10, I wrote to the church, But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. And he goes on to say he's making things up about us and saying this and that. So here's the deal. John the Apostle sends a letter. Diotrephes doesn't receive the letter. He rejects the letter because Diotrephes has rejected John's authority. Because Diotrephes loved the spotlight. And Diotrephes hated for even John, the father and founder of that church, to be loved more than Diotrephes. He couldn't stand it. He loved to have the preeminence. Somebody once said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Diotrephes made a very small package. And John wrote him up in the Bible as an example. And this can happen with a pastor. 
a pastor who gets selfish and doesn't want to delegate and wants all the limelight and doesn't want to let anybody do any other thing in the church except him. This can happen to a board member who goes rogue. This can happen to an elder or a deacon or a home leader or a school of ministry student. Anybody can do this. And church history, as I said, has been littered with it. What is the antidote for that? If servants should be helpful, but servants can be hurtful, the antidote is humility. Servants must be humble. Look at verse 28, chapter 20, Acts. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. There's a few elements here that that tell us how to develop the kind of humility that will counteract this. Number one, every leader must realize whose church it is. It's not his church. It's not your church. It's his church. Notice it's called the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I didn't die for the church. You didn't die for the church. So it's not yours. And it's not mine. It's his. It's his church. He, he spilled his blood and he owns it. Second, realize who made you a leader. How did you get to be a leader? Ultimately, it says the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 28, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you might be an overseer. You might be an important leader in the church. You might have the gift of governments or administration or teaching, but you can't even take credit for that. Well, I'm such a gifted person. So what? God gave you the gift. He gave you the gift. You can't boast about the gift if it came from God and not you. Number three is to realize what your calling is. And if you are a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop or whatever term you desire to go by, you have a twofold calling. Calling number one, to pastor the sheep. Calling number two, to protect the sheep. First is to pastor or to feed. That's the idea of poimenos in verse 8, that you will shepherd the church of God. Feed them. This means there is absolutely no excuse for a lazy pastor to not study and prepare a great meal for the flock. You can't be too busy doing anything else for... It was late in Acts chapter 6. We must give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. But that's just the first part of a pastor's calling. It's not just to nourish and to feed the sheep, but also to protect from predators. I remember one of the first times I read Psalm 23, there was a phrase that just jumped out to me. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's that little phrase, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, I understand how a staff can be a comfort to a sheep because the staff is what the shepherd uses to guide the sheep. But then I studied what a rod was. You know what a rod was used for? It was a club. It hung on the belt of a shepherd, had nails at the end of it. The club was used to beat up wolves. Now, if you were a sheep and your shepherd just had a staff but no rod, you might be comforted sometimes, but you'd be scared the rest of the time thinking, what if the wolves come? My shepherd won't protect me. But if your shepherd has a staff and a rod to beat the snot out of wolves who come and get you, that'd be very comforting if you're a sheep. Martin Luther said, 
If I preach correctly and shepherd the flock with sound doctrine, I neglect my duty if I do not warn the sheep against the wolves. For what kind of builder would I be if I were to pile up masonry and then stand by while another tears it down? Says Luther, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish and teach, but he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. And Paul was a good shepherd. I love you. I've shunned not to declare the whole counsel of God, he says in previous verses. But I also want to warn you. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. There's a fourth step to humility that I want to show you from verse 28. Not just realize whose church it is. Not just realize that God, the Holy Spirit, called you into it. And not just to realize what your calling is, but the fourth principle is to rally others to help you do the work. You'll notice that he's speaking to a group, plural. Elders, plural. Overseers, plural. Yourselves, plural. In verse 28. You see, leadership, and certainly leadership in a church, can never be a one-man band. You ever seen a one-man band, a real one-man band? If you've traveled subways like in New York, you'll see them. They, they, they push their feet on a little symbol that opens and closes. And they've got a guitar in their hand, a little harmonic up here, and twirlies up on their head. And they can flap their arms and make another instrument. It's very novel, but really uncool. It's like, oh, whatever. I'll tell you what's better than a one-man band. An orchestra. Yeah, you got an orchestra leader, but you got all these instruments that play in harmony together. And when it works right and they're tuned up right, wow, that's beautiful. That's how it ought to be. There's not one person that can possibly discern the will of God for an entire church, especially if it's a large church. It takes plurality of leadership. I was reading this week about geese and their flying information. And down where I live, I get to see them do this a lot. A couple times a year, going north and going south, and they they fly in that V formation. So I was reading a couple articles, one done by two engineers, who were asking the question, why do geese fly in a V formation? And so they, they duplicated the V formation in a wind tunnel, and this is what they discovered. Each goose flapping its wings creates an uplift for the goose behind it. In fact, the whole flock gains a 71% greater flying range than if they journeyed alone. The leader will fall back periodically to let another leader take the point. And even in a flock of geese, says these authors, leadership is a shared responsibility. I love this flock. I love teaching and shepherding this flock. But I also need help. And I love the hundred-plus leaders that we're training for home fellowships. And I love those who do ushering and children's ministries and security and women's ministry and men's ministry and on and on. All of that help, I love it. But if you're going to serve, you better love these sheep too. You better love these sheep because they're not your sheep. And if you have a little home Bible study or you're a leader, they're not yours. They are His. And I love them. And if you're going to serve alongside, you better love them too. Because they don't belong to anybody but Him. 
And we must never become deacon-possessed, but deity-obsessed. It's about Him and His glory. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that our calling would not be to fulfill some need that we have to exercise a gift that we feel we have. The calling goes much deeper than that. It's because we are compelled to do so. And it's a gift that comes from you. Everybody is not called to do everything, but everybody is called to do something. And as we discover what that is and we get involved and we become leaders of fives and tens and twenties and hundreds or captains of thousands, as in the Old Testament, that would only be because promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west, but from the Lord. And that we'd never make it about us or our agenda, but always about you and your agenda. And then, Lord, as leaders, keep us pure in character, pure in motive. As imperfect as we are and as much as we rejoice that you choose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, I pray that we would grow in grace and grow in holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.